Okay, now to our latest guest in our Top 5 book series. Today's guest is the award-winning author Kevin Barry, author, of course, of uh, City of Bohan and uh, Beetlebone Boat, award-winning bestsellers. You're very welcome, uh, Kevin. Good to have Thanks you here. Thanks very much, Shane. Cheers. Listen, before we get to your list, you know, you're a writer, you're an author. I'm, I'm guessing books are part of your, your life. Well, I mean, is it all novels for you or is it pretty much everything that you Oh read? God, no, everything under the sun really. And I start lo- loads of books and I don't finish many of them. Yeah, you know, there's, a, there's a typical thing where I have 20 or 30 alongside the bed kind of on the go yeah. and I'm sitting there and looking at my iPhone in the bed. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it, sounds, um, it sounds horribly familiar. Yeah. yeah. No, all sorts, all sorts, novels, essays, stories, whatever, you know, graphic novels. But it's not many I, I get through to the end of these days, weirdly <laughs> enough, you know. And was it always, like, was it something from sort of age six on that you were... Oh, uh, yeah, definitely a, a, a sort of classic sort of um, pale, tubercular, bookish child. <laughs> no, <laughs> slightly odd and most at home in kind of libraries and stuff like that. And... Uh, not glamorous about it <laughs> as yeah. a child until now. It, then it's now it's very glamorous. Now, now I guess it's, it's and you're it's, winning all these massive there. awards with big prize money. Yeah. So. There's a great line somewhere in a David Foster Wallace novel where he gets into a cabin, goes to the library and step on it. It's <laughs> a great joke, you know, about the supposed glamour of the reading life. But um, yeah, no, always as a kid, like nothing better than to be kind of off school with a heavy head cold which meant I had to stay in the bed and read books for the day. You know, those are the best days. And is it still like that or is it is it something of a busman's holiday about it? Because, you know, you're, a lot of your day is obviously yeah. spent writing. Well, it's it's weird, actually. Like, a lot of the time you're kind of enjoying a book in two ways, I suppose, when you're a writer. You're looking as a reader in the first instance just for the experience, for the reader's experience to enjoy it. But you're also kind of always watching going sort of, well, how's she doing it? Or how's it done? Or how's he got this effect? You know, Oh, oh that's clever. You're kind, or, of, you're kind of watching yeah. in both ways. Yeah. Um, as a practitioner, and but but fundamentally as a writer, one of the, the most important things you are as a reader as well. You know that's what feeds into the work all the time. Okay, let's get to your your choices and uh, your top five books in no particular order. We're going to start with one which I have to admit I haven't read, and it's one that's on my you know I really must read this mm. book, and that is Underworld by Don DeLillo. I think is how Don you DeLillo. Yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about this book and and why you you like it so much. Yeah, it, you know sometimes when you read a book that really knocks you to the floor. You have a very visceral memory of the place you were when you read it. And I was I was in romantically I was in Verona in Italy. Nice I place. had um I had a jolly from the examiner in Cork to go and cover in my journalistic days to go and cover a wine fair, which was one of the most sought after wow, um, that sounds like quite a jolly <laughs> all right, yeah. <laughs> sought after assignments. So I went along but it actually turned out to be a very boring kind of trade fair in a big hall. So I said uh, shag this now. So I went off and I started drinking coffee and glasses of beer around town and I'd brought along the novel Underworld by Dan DeLillo and it really did knock all the wind out of me you know it's 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 a doorstopper you know it's a big book there's seven or eight hundred pages of it there and it really kind of takes on nothing less than the second half of the 20th century in America does the whole lot top to bottom politics entertainment worlds society and it works brilliantly around a very kind of old-fashioned trick actually in the way it's structured he takes a famous baseball game from the 50s deep Probably most famous baseball game ever. The home run is knocked into the stands. The ball is caught, becomes a collector's items, and he basically follows the ball around the US the, for 50 the, years. The, the shot that was heard around the world the shot or that something? was heard around the world. Which, with yeah. typical American overstatement, because probably yeah, nobody, exactly. nobody outside of America had probably even heard of yeah. it, basically. But, but it, it's the old, most old-fashioned plot device in the book, probably. You know, it's the scarlet letter. It's a missing object. Where's it gone? Who's passing it around? Where's it is? And he uses that to go into all sorts of different worlds. What I love about the Lilo more than anything, I guess, is 
what he does right down at the level of the sentence, you know. And I remember around this time I was in my kind of mid-late 20s and starting to write fiction in a serious way myself. And um, I remember coming across one of the rare interviews he gave and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, I don't really care about the meaning of a sentence. I just, I'm just interested in the sound and the rhythm of it and the kind of music you can get out of it. And that really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, and they're amazing, glamorous sentences in this book. I, I would find it hard to think of a, a, a living writer who sentence for sentence is better really? than him. The sentences have a kind of a gleam, like cut diamonds, you know. Um, he's also, he can be very funny, you know. All of my favourite writers at some level are funny as well. I like comedy. I think it's the truest kind of human mode. Um, it's truest to the way we get through life ourselves in that kind of, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry kind of way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Delilo really gets that dark laughter all the way through his books, you know. The central character in it is Nick Shea. Is he, yeah. is he your kind of classic anti-hero? Or? Yeah, no, he's, he, I suppose he is the most central character and he's very interestingly, the, the world Delilo puts him into is the world of waste management which has all sorts of metaphorical um, resonance. Mm-hmm. When you're, It's a book that dealing with the last 50 years in America up to the turn of the decade. He, he's an expert in trash, this guy, and in rubbish, and where does it go? And this allow, allows Delilo to look into all these sorts of worlds as well, you know, all these kind of hidden worlds of stuff that's all around us and that we never really look at the systems and the way it's organised. He's one of the, Nick Shea in, in the book, he's one of the great moderns, you know. He's a very modern hero. I don't think he's an anti-hero. He's a kind of a quiet, unassuming hero. At the start of the book he seems a very straight up kind of guy but you very quickly learn that there's a very dark history there as mm. well. So all sorts of psychological tricks have been played with you straight away, you know. But um, he's a, he's probably the most central character but it goes all over the place. So we have some quite famous real life characters who appear fictionalised. Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover's in there, isn't he? Sinatra is in there. Um, Can't be bad then. There's a it? great routine done for Lenny Bruce. He takes the comedian Lenny Bruce and actually makes up a Lenny Bruce routine and it was it was actually very inspirational for me when I was trying to take a real life character like John Lennon in the last novel and try and do him in a fictional way on the page. Delillo does that brilliantly in this and also in the book Libra where he took the Lee Harvey Oswald character and tried to fictionalise him. The reason he's so good at doing that is because his dialogue is brilliant. The dialogue is kind of faultless. He's an uncanny ear, you know. His dialogue as it comes across on the page it's one of the most truest renditions of modern American usage I've ever come across. And again, always funny, you know. Yes. And when this book came out, I think it was 97, and he had been kind of a critically acclaimed author, I guess, for a couple of decades by that stage or more. But he'd never had a big kind of crossover hit, and this was it, you know. Uh, This became a big bestseller. It was the book to read that year. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's one of my most vivid reading experiences as reading Underworld. In Verona, in 1997. Just lastly, on a dodging, dodging work. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like a hard life. Um, <laughs> is it an easy read? I mean, is it? I mean, it is e- indeed. Yeah, it, it, you'd actually f- you'd flake through it. You know, there's always sort of an, a slight sense of dread when it's a, a doorstopper of a book, and you see those 800, 900 pages, and you think, God, there's only so much reading time available to me now, and there are so many good books out there. But this one is worth it. I've been rereading it in the fairly recent past, actually. It's a book I often go back to and dip into for 30 or 40 pages. Might not necessarily read the whole lot again. Um, and it kind of never lets you down, you know. Okay, great first choice. From a great American novel then to a, a great sort of British renaissance almost uh, novel in um, in Wolf Hall. I mean, a lot of people, I suspect, probably more people have seen the TV series I than, guess by than, now. than yeah. read the book. And the TV series was brilliant as well. Yeah. 
I, I'd say actually in, in Choosing Will Fall, I, I really mean it to include its follow-up as well, bring out the bodies. Mm. Um, they're all of a piece. It's the same story about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII. But Will Fall, sure, for the sake of it, we'll name that one. Um, Hilary Mantel is a really interesting proposition as a writer, you know. Again, kind of for like Delillo, she'd been around for a long time with a lot of books and never really had had the big kind of crossover hit. Yeah. And she was really, something I really like as a reader, I know it really frustrates publishers, she was very unpredictable about what kind of book you were going to get out of her next. They were all over the shop, you know. They're always good. But with this stuff, she just seemed to get it first time. From the opening page, you just know in this book, oh God, this is really fresh. And really, it's a historical novel, but it's really fresh and really contemporary. Yeah, the way it feels. it's kind of like a political thriller to a degree. Completely isn't it? so. I mean, it's a yeah. book about politics. Yeah, really, and isn't it's it? and like you mentioned, the TV adaptation already, and it's it feels very cinematic or televisual, whatever way you want to put it, because she writes it in the present tense. It's all happening now as she writes it. So I saw her interviewed about it, and she said she wanted the sense of it to be like she was placing a camera down behind the front of Cromwell's eyes. So you're kind of in the room with him, yeah, and you were seeing everything as it unfolded. Again, very darkly funny, you know. Um, I, I, I came to it kind of belatedly. It came out about 2009 or 10. Swept all around it, of course. Won the Booker Prize and yeah. all that. What had put me off for a long time was at the start of the book, there's that thing you dread, you know, the list of characters. And it goes on for five or six pages. Yeah. I remember looking at that thinking, oh, a bit daunting. oh God. Jesus, no, <laughs> Can't you know, be doing that. I don't know if I can go with that at all, if I can follow that all the way through. But... Um, as soon as I started, I realised, oh, no, you're in, you're in very safe hands here. I took it as a, a beach book. I wouldn't be great for beaches. It did drive me insane with boredom, and I'm not great in heat. Been a ginger-haired child from um, Limerick. <laughs> but I, I took this, we were out in Greece, and we were on a very hot island, so I remember just sitting under trees. Would, would, <laughs> tried, <laughs> tried to get as much shade as I could with a lovely bottle of Greek beer and reading Wolf Hall. And gone. Oh, she's masterly, you know. Yeah, getting a recurring team here with the beer from the it's, city that you're it's reading. Always, it. <laughs> it's always, it's always, it's always a nice uh, we, addition. We should say it's because uh, people immediately go Cromwell. It's not Oliver Cromwell. It's, no, it's Tom, Thomas, Thomas it's Cromwell, Thomas. who I think they're distantly related. I think yeah, was his but, full title the Lord Chancellor or something? But he was essentially he was a key advisor. He, to he was Henry VIII's right hand man, and, yeah. and he works his way up from sort of a working class background. Yeah, very unusually be, for the time, mm. it would have been a huge transition to make to go from a working class kid on the banks of the Thames, the son of a kind of a drunken um, blacksmith, but they build it up to become a character who's at the centre of the royal court at this time. It's impossible almost at this stage to talk about the book without thinking of Mark Rylance yeah. in the television Brilliant performance. show. Yeah. And interestingly, she's trying to write the third one in the trilogy now, and I heard her in an interview again saying she's struggling because she can't get him out yeah, yeah. of her head. I can imagine that. Um, it's, a, it's a masterful performance, worthy of the book yeah. and worthy of the creation. And he he says so very little in it. He does it all with the eyes and glances and looks. But yeah, Wolf Hall, it's, it's, it's a fabulous literary experience, if you want to put it like that. The language, the structure, the skill, all that is there, but it's a great old-fashioned. It's got what I always call thumb in a book, you know. You yeah. really keep moving the thumb along the bottom well, of the Is it quite like your first choice then? I mean, obviously very different eras, different countries, but yeah, uh, both would, impeccably researched, both they, kind of page turners. They would definitely have resonances with each other, I'd say. They both feel very contemporary. You could take Wolf Hall as a perfect allegory for any kind of a financial advisor, a figure now at the, at the top end of the realms or any sort of political advisor. All the human stuff stays the same no matter what era you're dealing with. And again, I guess the other thing that we would have in common with the first book is there's a real waspish kind of wit 
there as well. There are very funny moments. There are very funny lines. It's very much, you very feel like you're moving scene to scene rather than from page to page, you know. Um, you, you kind of see it unfold before you. Okay, two great choices to start with. Underworld by Don DeLillo and uh, Wolf Hall by Henry Mantel. Uh, Hilary Mantel, even not Henry Mantel. Kevin Barry is our guest, the uh, award-winning author. Let's get to your third choice. Now, this is a little bit more left field, if mm. I can put it like that. A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard. Yeah. I mean, it's not a book of fiction. It's Yeah, it's a book of essays written, right. I think... In the early 1970s, or I guess a better way of describing it would be a journal. It's kind of like a diary of a year that the great American essayist Annie Dillard spent in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, living there. On the trail of the lonesome, whatever. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, it's a very old American mode, going back to Thoreau and the woods and all of that. It's um, a look at the, the changing seasons, as simple as that, over the course of a year in this very beautiful rural place that she was based for a while. I was amazed to love this book to the extent that I did because it's um, it's quite religious, you know. I don't have a doubt it's a religion in me body. Um, Annie Dillard does, you know. Yeah, she describes she, I think as a book of theology, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, and she's very much, I, go, I suppose, a pantheist would be the proper term. She sees God in nature um, and goes into that. But it's um, it's a mad, batty book, you know. Like she can write, write about frog's legs, you know, or a frog's knee for pages on end and keep you absolutely transfixed as if you are reading a thriller. It is a lovely kind of um, strange atmosphere to it. She's very strong on nature not being a gentle, picturesque thing, but nature being something that's red and tooth and claw, to use the old expression. I really like the form of it. It feels very unrushed and very unhurried. Beautiful sentences, really memorable she comes out of, uh, and I think it, all the great essay writers have this, is that you see their personality come through the work very much, you know. How does it work, Kevin? Because, you know, if I went out and wrote a book about, you know, Fitzborough and the changing seasons, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would bore the pants Give it off a go, everyone. man. Give it a go. You never know until you try it. It could be what we're all waiting for. Um, I doubt it. Yeah, and, and again, I picked it up. I remember I picked it up in um, a second-hand um, bookshop somewhere. Um, I think. I think when I was living in Liverpool a few years ago and, and having heard of it, it has, a, I suppose, a kind of a cultish um, reputation. And she's still going. She's still, she wrote this, in, I guess, in her early 30s and she's still practising now very much as um, as an essayist in her mid-late 70s, or it, it must be at this point, and still writing very, very strong stuff. She would have a kind of, I guess, a kind of a critical renown without being widely known. And I don't know if this book is even widely available. You might have to order this one online, but I I'd strongly urge people to... Um, dig it out for a very different reading experience. I think it's interesting to think of a book like this in, in terms of where we are now as readers, where we're, we're all people who spend so much time online mm. every day. And that puts our brains in a very flitty, impatient kind of state, you know, moving around too quick as we jump from site to site. And if you want to slow that down, and if you want to go into something that's a completely different experience as a reader, a really immersive, quiet experience, a book like... Pilgrim at Tinker Creek could really do it for you. Something that moves slowly to its own rhythms, takes a year in a certain place, looks at how it changes. I tell you, man, this stuff like meditation, you know, if, if, if you go into it in the right <laughs> frame of mind. I was kind of delighted with myself that the God stuff didn't bother me in it at all. You yeah. know, I thought I would have been snootier about that. But it's, um, she's not sort of um, Bible bashing by any stretch. You know, she's, um, what comes across from her is, is just a very clear vision and a very honest person. And, um, a real uncanny and brilliant ability to get at 
minutiae, you know, at the really small stuff and, and to talk to us about it. Okay, amazing. I, I have this kind of image in my head of kind of Misha Era playing and all these shots yeah. of nature. I wouldn't give up on the, the Fibsborough book, though. Yeah, okay. Right. That right. could be the one, man. <laughs> okay, this Pigeon, could, Pigeons of Fibsborough. It is could be my brain. <laughs> There's quite a few of them, all right. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, let's um, let's get to your, your fourth choice. You've gone for an Irish author for yeah. this one, Dermot Healy, and I mean, you could have chosen many books, but you've gone for, I suppose, probably, is it his best known book, uh, A Goat Song, or his I best renowned one? Yeah, I guess it most is. Most a goat song. All of his books are worth digging out. Dermot Healy, as listeners will know, sadly passed away a couple of years ago at the relatively um, young age. I think he was 68 or 69. And a huge loss. Um, to talk about myself where I was when I read this book, you know, as a kind of a young writer in my 20s and reading the kind of older Irish writers at the time. And you always kind of at some level are rebelling against that stuff. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't sound quite like your country. So I'd read something like John McGarhern and could see how brilliant it was and be so impressed by it. But at the same time thinking, Jesus, this is my father's country. He's, yeah. he's describing, you know. But when I read um, Healy, it felt to me like, oh yeah, this is the world and the Ireland that I'm seeing around me as well, you know. I would not describe it as a perfect novel. It has long kind of wandery sections that don't especially rush to get anywhere in particular. But there are some sections in it which are just transcendent, you know. Um it essentially tells the story of this um, playwright character. Um, he's a writer-type figure, a failed love affair. He's out in Belmullet. He's working on the fishing boats a bit. A woman has left him, an actress in one of his plays. He's really bottoming out, you know. He's, he, he's hit the bottle hard, and it goes back into the whole story of their romance. And what it presents, actually, is a very interesting case as well, because it turns out she's from a Protestant background, north of the border, and her father was a an RUC sergeant there. Mm. Now there's a portrait, and it's early on in the book, I think about a third of the way into the book, there's a kind of a 70 or 80 or 90 page portrait of this RUC man, this father. And it's one of the best things I've ever read in Irish literature, you know. It's brilliantly done. It has real incredible pace as you go through it, but the detail and the truth of it and everything. He gets caught up, this RUC guy, in a, in a riot in Derry in 68. And he's seen on the television, visibly, beating up a couple of protesters. Um, it throws him into a real head spin, you know. One of the things he does is he buys a summer house down in Belmullet as a place to kind of get away from all of that. Ironically, because, yeah. and I love the fact that he's kind of both repelled by the yeah. South and kind of and kind attracted, of attracted to, to it, it yeah. as well and trying to and kind of becomes attracted to the whole sort of Gaelic mythology of the West of Ireland, if you want to put it like that. Um it's probably, I think, a goat song is probably most memorable for that character. But Healy is, um, there's a certain kind of a magic to his prose or to his language. He's um, a faultless writer of dialogue, especially from the kind of northwest of the country. Great, great ear. And what I love about him is he's kind of very unpredictable, paragraph by paragraph, page by page. You never quite know what mood you're in with the writer. You know, he can be very playful and light and funny. Um, laugh out loud funny and then suddenly you come to a really dark thorny bit and go Jesus what were we laughing at there a page or two ago you know so very difficult character like that I knew him a little bit when I moved up to County Sligo myself he was very um, kind to us we we moved into an old house up there and he sent us down a builder because we had problems with the chimneys there was crows getting into the bedroom I remember telling this um, to Dermot one day in Sligo Town and he said, uh, that poor girl you're with, you'd want to sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent us down a builder. And uh, But when you met him like around the place, he was an unpredictable kind of character as well. He wouldn't always, he could be 
absolutely in flying form and you'd have a great laugh and other days then he could be in a slightly more difficult mood so you don't know what you'd get but I think a truly great writer I think there's fear of his work you know I mm. think it'll really persist and last a goat song all of them you know there's a bunch of novels or there's five or six you couldn't say any one of them is perfect but they all have amazing things in them the very last one long time no see is brilliant stuff said a bit farther up the northwest coast up in North County Sligo, up around where Dermot um, lived himself, put a goat song. It's also one of the greatest descriptions, I think, in recent, fairly recent Irish literature of a particular place in terms of what it what it does with the Mullet Peninsula in a kind of strange way. It wants it to make it go out there. Mm. Um, I mean, Healy is, is I think, as a writer, he's, he's tuned into something beyond what we perceive of as reality. He's looking into the other side of things and into 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 the mystic, if you want to put it in a Van Morrison-esque way. Okay. He's looking at what's <laughs> going on behind the usual everyday things we're perceiving. He's He was one of a kind, you know, and a, a truly great writer. And not everybody has read him yet, is, yeah. is, the, is the amazing thing about it for me. And there is treasures out there waiting, you know, okay. if you go okay. at this stuff. Okay, great choice. And uh, let's, for your final choice, you're going to go to another uh, book based on a sort of a windy and, and wild place. It's a, yeah. one of the classic English uh, novels, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Yeah, and it's interesting actually you said about place coming up in all of these. And um, I suppose this one, I think one of my older sisters was doing it for her intercert. So it was lying around the house and I was about 10, I think. And the classic thing of kind of having a bit of a dose of flu are pretending to have a bit of a dose of flu, having a nice week off in some November, you know, and this book lying around. And as a 10 or 11-year-old, kind of having outgrown the Hardy Boys and the Famous Five. Yeah, this is and, quite a leap. And sort of suddenly you're starting to read this and discovering that a book could be a mode of transport, essentially, that it could take you out of a suburb in Limerick City in the early 1980s and transplant you to this wind-blasted, Yorkshire Moor in the 1820s or whatever, whenever it is it's set and land you right down in, into this great, dark, kind of tragic romance. I, I, I love absolutely everything about this book and I know it's not one of the classics that everyone automatically admires. People, Some people find it a bit ripe. It wasn't uh, even regarded as the, the best book written in our house for a By a Bronte. <laughs> a strange bunch actually. There's a new book out about Charlotte, the sister and Emily comes across as a very strange character in it I must say. But it's not to say a word against her as a writer. I love the storytelling in the book because it's framed. It's a story that's told to the narrator who comes to rent a house mm. down in, in, in this place. So it's relayed and it very much feels like having this old yarn spun interior late at night by a fireplace, as he is having in the book. Everybody knows the story of, of Withering Heights, a foundling child called Heathcliff, brought back by the father, a prosperous enough Yorkshire farmer to the family house and brought up as one of his own and the child falling in love more or less with the with the wild kid Catherine of the family so everyone knows the bones of it or has seen a film or television version of it but each time you go back into it and this is I think is is, is the mark of a great book I must have read this half a dozen times Wee, yeah. seven or eight times over okay. the course of my life and every time you go back you get more out of it when you go back as an older reader you're getting okay. a little bit more each time. I remember the last time I read it a couple of years ago, looking at some of the technique in it as a kind of a, a practitioner now myself, you know, I'm going, God, you know, everything, everything is so good about this. A lot of it is written in a big kind of Yorkshire dialect and it looks very dense at first on the page, but actually is, as soon as you start hearing it in your head, as you read it, it becomes crystal clear. It's a great 
tragic romance as well. And I think actually people who loved this book loved it first when they were teenagers because there's something in the story that resonates with Is teenagers. It the, the romance? You know? It's that kind of operatic, melodramatic yeah. love story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that ends, I want him, I can't have him. Yeah, that ends of, yeah. horribly. And yeah. there's something in the teenage soul that thrives on that. That thrives on this kind yeah. of stuff. Um, uh, there's a darkness there as well. And, and I suppose so. you could say there's, that's a kind of a recurring theme in the, yeah. in the uh, with the possible exception of maybe uh, Annie Dillard, although yeah. you're saying mm. even that, you're saying that nature has teeth in that. Is that something that appears? Oh, absolutely. And, and very much the kind of the, the winds and rains and gales of the place and the sense of it as a really forbidding landscape there and also as a kind of a a really kind of um, a God-haunted place, you know, at that time and a really kind of a repressed society and these wild passions coming out into the open in, in the midst of that kind of a world. But yeah, it's interesting that so many of the, the books I've talked about today start kind of with a place really and it's something I've discovered in, in my own work as well. When I look back at any of the things I've written, any of the stories or anything, almost always the original inspiration is a place. It's something in the atmosphere of a place that makes you want to set a story there. It's, ah. it's almost always the case with me. And even in your own life, I mean, you've yeah. you've moved around a lot. I think it's quite very a bit. Yeah, I have. I'm pretty settled out the last good while in County Sligo, but moved a lot in my twenties and thirties. Yeah, it's strange, you know. I, I I've discovered over time as as a practicing writer myself, it's um. It's a very useful thing to get out of the house and go around the country on my bike or whatever, just to um, eavesdrop and to overhear things. It's it's where it's always a place that gives you some sort of um, initial kind of stirring that you want to create characters for that little part of the world you've stumbled upon. You know, I sometimes think with my favourite books, I couldn't tell you their plot if you put a gun to my head. You know what I mean? I could tell you, it's it's the atmosphere yeah. of the book and the characters really that stay with you and the language that's used. Of course, they had they had an Irish background as well, the Bronte. So it's almost a second Irish book for okay. the list. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Listen, brilliant. Kevin Barry's choices again: uh, Underworld by Don DeLillo, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard, A Goat Song by Dermot Healy, and uh, we were talking about it there: Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Kevin Barry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Great fun, Shane. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Now, here at Top 5 Books, there's a lot more interesting guests and book recommendations in our podcast feed for you. If you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate if you could subscribe and if you could give us a rating if you have indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.